0: And welcome to Light on Light Through, episode 109, my review of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Well, I watched Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. It's a 10-episode anthology of separate stories, all based on the work of Philip K. Dick on Amazon Prime back in January, about two months ago. And these are my reviews of all 10 episodes, which were written in the following manner. First, I wrote these reviews right after I saw each episode. Second, you should know that I've read many of Dick's stories, and I've enjoyed to loved all of them, but I generally find reviews that prattle lawn about how the movie or TV show compared to the novel or story to be a little boring or even irritating. So I refrained from doing that in these reviews, except in a few cases where exceptions were manifestly warranted, or at least I thought so. And finally, I tried very hard not to deliver any crucial spoilers, like how the story ends, if there is a resolution, because often there isn't in Philip K. Dick's stories. But you know how these things are. Inevitably, there will be a few spoilers. So please, proceed at your own risk. Now let's get to the first episode. That's episode 1.1 is called Real Life. I think of it as Mutually Alternate Realities. It engages, as most of Dick's works do, the question of what is real and what is a dream or fantasy or alternate in contrast to primary reality. But real life takes this in an exquisite direction, giving us two realities, each with devices that allow their protagonist to have a great vacation in an alternate reality based on what they need. And we soon learn that each protagonist's presumably primary reality is the other's vacation or alternate reality. And here's where Philip K. Dick does what he's so good at. He takes something that many other science fiction writers have dabbled in, alternate realities, and he gives it this twist with these mutually overlapping alternate realities. So, in effect, what we get here are mirroring alternate realities, two mirroring alternate realities. Now, this, of course, raises the question of which of these mutually dependent realities is the real one. Since neither character is very happy, we have to search a little deeper to find an answer, and as the episode progresses, each protagonist not only begins to question if her or his reality is real or the mental vacation. But each character finds the other reality spilling into his or her own. Again, another classic Dick feature where dreams and fantasies and illusions spill into reality. You can have a tough time figuring out which is which, which means this is a good story. And there is a conclusive answer given at the end. It's fine acting by Anna Paquin and Terrence Howard as the interdependent lead, and a good, quote, written for television, unquote, by none other than Battlestar Galactica's and Outlander's one and only Ronald D. Moore. Episode 1.2 is entitled Autofact. I think of it as human versus machine. In artifact, we have Dick addressing his perennial what's real and what's fantasy, a dream, alternate, whatever conundrum, in a form likely best known these days and for better than three decades. Which is more human, the android or robot or the humans who made it, her, him? Now this, of course, is the theme of Blade Runner, the original movie, and the recent sequel, based on Dick's novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Two words of which, in fact, are part of the title of this 2018 streaming series. Since Artifact is just the second episode I've seen of Electric Dreams, I can't tell you if it captures the essence of Dick's science fiction better than the other episodes, But I will say it does an outstanding job of presenting the story of which is android and which is human with the intensity we might expect to find in HBO's Westworld, which in turn means that Amazon Prime in this series is playing on some high intellect octane terrain indeed. Not surprising, because that's just what it did in its other Philip K. Dick production The Man in the High Castle, and I reviewed both episodes or both seasons of The Man in the High Castle right here on Light On, Light Through. You can find links to those reviews on the lightonlightthrough.com podcast page, L-I-G-H-T-O-N L-I-G-H-T-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com. Anyway, one of the reasons that Dick has had more of his stories brought to the screen than, say, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, and all the masters of science fiction combined, is that he knew how to put twists and turns and surprises right in with the most complex philosophic puzzles. Artifact has that, and it manages to provide a narrative that is fresh and surprising, even though its post-apocalyptic setting and artificial intelligence motifs are almost commonplace these days on the page and the screen. There's top-notch acting by Juno Temple, and it was good to see Revolution's David Lyons back. And it was well-written for television by Travis Beecham and sharply directed by Peter Horton. Let's go to episode 1.3, entitled Human Is. I think of it as compassionate or alien. Now, Humans in Outer Space has been adopted to the screen far less than other themes of Philip K. Dick, but his work in that area is equally brilliant and sometimes better than his better-known themes, I've thought that ever since I read his Beyond Lies the Wub, first published way back in 1952. And in the case of Blade Runner, based on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the two motifs, outer space and robots, are in effect combined. Human Is, the 3rd standalone episode in Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams 10-episode anthology, is just about out of space, and it's science fiction at its very zenith. Though, if we're dealing with Philip K. Dick, nothing he ever writes is ever just about that, whatever that may be, because it's always imbued with the question which haunts and animates just about everything he wrote. Is it a dream, or is it real? Is it human or android, this dimension, or another one? In Human Is, the question is whether Silas, powerfully played, by the way, by Brian Cranston, is human or Rexorian, a dangerous species from another planet that likes to inhabit its human hosts. Silas, left on the mission, cold and distant to his wife Vera, played with sensitivity by S.E. Davis, last seen, at least by me, in The White Princess and Game of Thrones. And he returns full of tenderness, consideration, and lovemaking that Vera tells him she never experienced like that from him before. Silas nearly died on this mission. So is his new, much better behavior the result of that experience changing him, making him more human, or because he is no longer just Silas, but a meld of Rexorian and human. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you the ending. What I will say is that this is one beautiful piece of work, right down to the cinematography by David Katznelson, the directing of Francesca Gregorini, and the writing for television by Jessica Mecklenburg. And the acting not only sails, of course, with Cranston and Davis, but with strong supporting performances by Ruth Bradley, Last Seen in Humans, an android series, about as dicky-in as it gets, and Game of Thrones' Liam Cunningham. Having now seen three episodes of Electric Dreams, I'd say it's right up there with The Twilight Zone, and better, from what I've seen, than Black Mirror. That's right. Let's move on to episode 1.4, Crazy Diamond. I think of it as DNA Batteries. The fourth episode in Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams returns us to familiar territory, a man in a dangerous relationship with a female who is, well, not android precisely, but she's a Jill, in quotes, and is some kind of DNA engineered with an organic battery that runs down and needs to be replaced. That's what makes this relationship especially dangerous. Jill needs Ed, a thoroughly human programmer, to get her a new battery, and maybe some others, so the two can sell them, make lots of money, and run away together and live happily ever after. And ah, there's one more little piece of this. Ed is married. Now, one could say that all relationships between human and android, or human and something that's quasi human and runs on DNA batteries, are dangerous. And I'd be inclined to agree. But what always gives Philip K. Dick's stories an edge is that he mixes the science fiction with a war or a crime or something else. And that's a potent cocktail and mixed well in Crazy Diamond. The thing is, Crazy Diamond is so far the least like the original Dick Story, which was sales pitch, that it's based on. It doesn't even have the same name, which makes it different in that respect from the other three I've so far reviewed. Now, I did say in my review of the first episode when I began these reviews that I wouldn't be comparing the streaming episodes to the original stories, but here I am, obviously making an exception for Crazy Diamond, as I said I would, which also has a strong feminist element, not in the original but I don't want to give anything more away. Like the three first episodes, Crazy Diamond has top-notch acting by famous and not-so-famous actors, including Steve Buscemi as Ed and Sitsi Babbitt Knutson, I assume that's how you pronounce the name, from Westworld, and one of my all-time favorite shows that I think uh, we streamed on Netflix, Borgen, takes place in Denmark, and Knutson plays Jill. This is written for television with a good ear as well as I by Tony Grisoni and well-directed by Mark Munden. with kudos for whoever came up with the idea of Ed in the Water, reminiscent of Busemi in the opening scene of Boardwalk Empire. Episode 1.5, The Hoodmaker. That's the title of it. I think of it as Telepathy and Police. Telepathy is another favorite, but not as well known as some other themes of Philip K. Dick, appearing in the aforementioned Beyond Lies the Wub in 1952. And its combination with police procedural in Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, episode 1.5, The Hoodmaker, makes her a classic Dick amalgam. And it's also a great story, compellingly rendered. Honor is a telepath, or a teep, teaming with Agent Ross to maintain order, which includes controlling the teeps whose ability to read normal human minds sows unease and disorder. Understandable. The situation is brought to a boil by the hoodmaker, who makes hoods which, when donned, block out the teep probes. The Hoodmaker is smartly written for television by Matthew Graham, who also wrote the TV adaptation of Childhood's End, and the British version of Life on Mars, much better, by the way, than the American version. And he has honor saying such memorable things as, quote, I could read people before I could read books, unquote. And Ross telling honor, quote, you can read minds, but you can't read my heart, Could be a great line even from a Beatles song. I don't think it is, but it's a good line here. Now, I just love quintessentially science fictional lines like those. And there's a nice symmetry between Holiday Granger from the Borgias playing Honor and Richard Madden from Medici playing Ross. Good directing, too, by Julian Gerald. I've been a sucker for telepathy in science fiction ever since I read Alfred Bester's Demolished Man as a Kid at the end of the 1950s, which, by the way, was also a good police story. And I put Sensate as number one on my list of the top 10 2017 television series for the same reason. By the way, I literally have a blog post on that, uh, my top 10 television series of 2017. And again, you'll find it on the webpage for this episode at lightonlightthrough.com. I put Hoodmaker in that same exalted category. A strong mix of telepathy and police. Episode 1.6... Safe and Sound. And I think of a good title of this episode as It Isn't a Drill. Now, Safe and Sound, episode 1.6 in Philip K. Dick's standalone 10 episode series on Amazon Prime, returns to the familiar but always exquisite Dick territory of Is It Real or Illusion? In this case, the real being an ear gel through which Foster Lee hears the voice of a digital assistant and the illusion being the possibility that the voice is literally in her head, given some credence since her father was a psycho who heard voices. This dilemma is presented in the environment of a not-so-distant future in which the big eastern cities are worried about domestic terrorist attacks from the rural bubbles, that's in quote, bubbles, that's what they call it there, out west. On that count, Safe and Sound is as reminiscent of Damon Knight's classic 1951 story, Natural State, as it is of Philip K. Dick's 1955 story, Foster Your Dead, on which this episode is thinly based. But There's Nothing Thin About Safe and Sound, written for television by Kaylin Egan and Travis Sentel, who give us an hour rich in symbolism and relevance to our own time, including the words, quote, this isn't a drill, unquote, just heard yesterday, that is the day before I saw this episode back in January 2018, in our reality when someone who should have known better released an announcement of an incoming ballistic missile attack in error that actually happened in Hawaii in our reality in January 2018 by the way it shows how we are increasingly living in a Philip K Dickian world now paranoia is also mainspring of Dick's fiction and his biographers and people who knew him attest sadly also his life and Annalise Basso does a fine job of portraying Foster in the throes of struggling with whether what she is hearing is real or worse. Though in this case, paranoia could be the better of two choices, since what she hears from her digital helper are escalating warnings about terrorists about to attack and what she needs to do to stop that. This is a well-directed episode by Game of Thrones' Alan Taylor, and it was good to see Maura Tierney as Foster's mother. She had almost the exact personality that she has as Helen in The Affair. Hey, I'll take that until The Affair comes back on the air, and Safe and Sound is eminently worth seeing on its own right. And guess what? You can hear my reviews of the first, I think, two seasons of The Affair, again on Light On, Light Through. I'll put links to those again on the webpage, and I'll soon be reviewing Season 3. Season 4, by the way, I think is due back on Showtime in the summer of 2018, so I'll eventually be back with reviews of that as well. Let's return to Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, episode 1.7, entitled The Father Thing. I think of this as Dick from Space. The 1950s were invaded with science fiction in which entities from outer space arrived here and took over the bodies of human beings. Invasion of the Body Snatchers made into a movie at least three times, 1956 and 1978 by that name, and again in 1996 as just Body Snatchers, and many more times as riffs on the same story with different names, is the best-known iconic template for that tale. So it was good to see it back again in The Father Thing, episode 1.7 of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. This episode tells us the story from the perspective of a boy whose father has been taken over by an alien from space. Written and directed by Justified's Michael Dinner from Philip K. Dick's 1954 story, The Father Thing, That's the father thing with a hyphen between father and thing, but the title of this episode is The Father Thing Without the Hyphen, but it nonetheless has an appealing 1950s flavor with a Twilight Zone ambience and a Stranger Things wrap-up, as the boy and then his friends in effect become freedom fighters, which brings the story into the present in terms of what we're seeing these days on television. Indeed. Indeed. That and the hashtag resist and video chatting, plus the use of the word dick, with a small d, in several pivotal places, such as when the father refers to the invaders as, quote, dicks from space, unquote, are about the only concessions the father thing makes to 2018. It's not surprising that Dick, with a capital D, the writer partook of this theme. Since the question of whether the man is my father or an alien who has commandeered his body is yet another version of is it real or my imagination? Just my imagination, this or that dimension, which all but consumed Philip K. Dick, but gave us so many great stories. But Dick, and now Dinner, do an especially good job at telling the story, fusing the angst of the son with the beginning of a coming-of-age story for him. Good work by Greg Kinnear as the father thing, Marielle Enos as the mother, you know who she is, she was in The Killing, all kinds of great shows on television, and Jack Gore, Billions as the son. And I gotta say, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, as of this episode, continues to have excellent performances by big name and lesser name actors as well. One of the things which makes this series a real joy. Episode 1.8 is entitled Impossible Planet. I think of it as Eyes of the Beholder. Now, I've been saying throughout these episode-by-episode reviews that this anthology has been attracting some top-draw stars. I mean, we're talking Brian Cranston, Steve Buscemi, Anna Paquin, Terrence Howard, Maura Tierney, Muriel Enos, and the like, but episode 1.8, Impossible Planet, brings us none other than Geraldine Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin's daughter, who made her first big appearance back in the 1960s in Dr. Zhivago. She plays a woman in her hundreds wanting to visit planet Earth before she dies. The story brings us back out into space, and it's pure Philip K. Dick, this time pitting us into a choice of not whether this person, memory, or thing is real or illusion, but whether the faux earth to which the unethical captain is taking her will fool her into thinking she's really back on humanity's home. And the ending, which I won't reveal, is also classic Philip K. Dick. More than most of Dick's stories in the movies and TV episodes made from them, though, Impossible Planet explores beauty or better reality in the eyes of the beholder. There's also an explicit religious element in this story, or a recognition that you can't talk about the wonder of the cosmos without some reference to God. That part was especially music to my ears. I long ago realized that what was missing in our efforts to get out into space was a connection to our need to know more about our place in this universe, which is inevitably not only scientific, but a spiritual question. Towards that end, to get that deeper element out in the open and into the mix of reasons that we need as a species to get out into space, Michael Waldemuth and I put together an anthology of essays and short stories back in 2015, Touching the Face of the Cosmos. We had an interview by John Glenn in that anthology, one of his last interviews that I had the pleasure of doing with him in July 2015, And we're planning a conference at Fordham University with Guy Consolmagno, the Pope's astronomer, as a keynote speaker this April 9th. So if you're in New York, by all means, come on by. By the way, Guy Consolmagno also has an essay in that anthology, Touching the Face of the Cosmos. But back to Impossible Planet, the writing from the 1953 story by Philip K. Dick for television and direction by David Farr, best known for MI5, by the way, a great British series originally entitled over there Spooks, but they changed the name to MI5 for its broadcasting here in the United States. And he also directed The Night Manager, and his direction of Impossible Planet is excellent. As is the acting, not only uh, by Chaplin, but Jack Rayner and Benedict Wong, who played Kublai Khan and Marco Polo on the Netflix series. Hey, even the robot which was a combination of Malik Ibrahim, and Christopher Staines, also due in part to a, quote, movement director, unquote, Ida O'Brien, was great and memorable and reminded me of the great robots in Forbidden Planet and The Day the Earth Stood Still, two great science fiction movies from the 1950s. And you know what? I'm pretty sure my high view of this excellent episode impossible planet, I'm pretty sure that's more than in just my eye or the eye of this beholder. Episode 1.9, The Commuter, submitted for your approval. Hey, if that little theme sounds familiar, well, I said in my review of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams 1.3 that I thought the series was, quote, right up there with the Twilight Zone, unquote. You know, I tend to make quick judgments, but I still feel that way now looking and thinking about the ninth episode. I even entitled my review of Electric Dreams 1.8 Impossible Planet, that's the review you just heard, Eye of the Beholder, in quotes, which, come to think of it, was the title of one of the best Twilight Zone episodes. Of course, there were 150 episodes of The Twilight Zone, in contrast to only 10 so far of Electric Dreams. So, when I say right up there, I mean only the episodes I've seen in Electric Dreams rank with any random fraction of a season of The Twilight Zone. If and when Electric Dreams gets to exceed 150 episodes, which, you know, it actually could, given that Dick wrote 44 novels and 121 short stories, not too shabby. I would say only Isaac Asimov exceeded him in that number of stories, but maybe a few other people did. But Dick is really right up there, not only as one of the all-time great science fiction writers, but also one of the most prolific. So, if we wind up getting a series that reaches 150 or so episodes, I'll get back to you then with a more definitive comparison between Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams and The Twilight Zone. In the meantime, though, episode 1.9, The Commuter, feels so much like a Twilight Zone episode that I half expected Rod Serling to appear and say, Submit it for your approval though, in case you didn't know, he actually only said that three times in the entire Twilight Zone series. But the commuter easily could have been a companion to a stop on Willoughby. Ah, another great Twilight Zone episode. It was the 30th episode in the series from 1960, which also has always been one of my favorites. Indeed, since Philip K. Dick's original The Commuter Story was published in 1953 in Amazing Stories, where, by the way, one of my first stories, Albert's Cradle, was published in 40 years later. Rod Serling may well have read Dick's story and had it in mind when he wrote Willoughby. Jack Thorne does a fine job bringing it to the screen in 2018, greatly assisted by Timothy Spall, whose Ed has one of those quintessentially British faces. His Willoughby is Mackin or Macon Heights, a stop on a train line that doesn't quite exist, literally. So here, the real or not real thread is woven around a town, replete with a diner that serves great pie which when you add in the attractive talkative waitress also resonates with another real or not multiple reality classic twin peaks david lynch rod serling philip k dick do have a lot of uncommon in common and now to the last episode which i feel bad about because i wish there were more It's a great episode, episode 1.10, Kill All Others, a great episode which I think of as Too Close for Comfort. The tenth episode of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, which I hope will be the first ten of very many, is Kill All Others, although each story is different. They're deeply connected and intertwined by the central galvanizing themes of all of Philip K. Dick's work, which we've been talking about here. Is it real or an illusion? With the struggle to decide which, always laced with paranoia. Kill All Others has these characteristics par excellence and is also the closest to the very time we're living in right now. That makes it closer to Black Mirror than The Twilight Zone, though it feels a lot like a Twilight Zone episode, too. Philbert Noyce sees a political candidate on television, the only candidate, by the way, running for president, and the candidate introduces a slogan, kill all others. At first, it seems he's the only one who saw this again the real versus illusion quandary but he soon confirms that others have seen this and he inevitably comes to think of himself as an quote other unquote and then of course in classic Philip K Dick fashion he becomes an other himself this is where the paranoia comes in with the inevitable dickian question of whether what noise is feeling and seeing is real or his overactive mind A reversion, as often happens in Philip K. Dick's stories, to the, quote, is it real, unquote, dilemma, which, of course, never, ever really goes away. The story for television, well-written and directed by D. Rees, departs from Dick's original 1953 story, The Hanging Stranger, replacing the nefarious aliens who have taken over the bodies of humans, as they did in Invasion of the Body Snatchers and also in Robert K. Heinlein's Puppet Masters. And this, of course, was also the theme of episode 1.7 of Electric Dreams. The Hanging Stranger replaces these aliens with just us humans, as both the villain politician and the others. This near-future setting gives us, quote, yes we can and, quote, Mex we can as government slogans. Both those, again, are in quotes. A good example of how fascism can co-opt democracy by twisting its words. And Royce saying kill all others is, quote, hate speech, unquote. But there's no one who looks like Trump in power likely because this was written before he was elected, but it's still unfortunate that the villain is not Trump. The single candidate is a woman, which puts Kill All Others in league with the new season of Homeland, and even Claire in House of Cards, with women in charge with dictatorial tendencies. Is this a shot against Hillary Clinton? Well, you can decide. All I'll say is I would have rather seen a Trumpian in this role since his policies are indeed, and unfortunately, getting closer and closer by the day to the xenophobia towards everyone around us in Kill All Others. Very good acting by Mel Rodriguez as Noyce and Glenn Morshower, yeah, 24, as one of his co-workers and Vera Farmiga as The Nameless Candidate. Well, that was my review of the 10th episode and I always like to pick a favorite episode so I'll do it here. The choice is tough in this 10 episode anthology, there were so many superb episodes If pushed, I guess I'd go with 1.3 Human Is, which was fabulous. But you know, I loved almost everything about this series, including the great opening sequence, by the way. And I'll be back here with more whenever Electric Dreams continues. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that review of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. And I will be back here with more more reviews of science fiction on television and in the movies, maybe a reading or two of my own science fiction, and I think it's getting time maybe for a little political commentary. Uh, Look for that soon. You heard me sneak in a little in my review of 1.10, that is episode 10 of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. So until then, enjoy.